Welcome to Risk Never Sleeps, where we meet and get to know the people delivering patient care and protecting patient safety. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. Welcome to the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, in which we discuss the people behind protecting patient care. I'm Ed Gaudet, the host of our program, and I am pleased to be joined today by Greg Garneau, Chief Information Security Officer for Marshfield Clinic, an integrated health system with 11 hospitals and 60 clinics whose mission it is to enrich lives through accessible, affordable, compassionate health care. Welcome, Greg. Hey, Ed. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah, no, excited to, to hear more about you and your background. And I know our listeners are looking forward to hearing what you're up to at Marshfield Clinic. The clinic is one of the nation's largest rural health systems. We also have, in addition to the hospitals and the clinics, we a world-class research institute as well as a health insurance plan. So all of that falls under my purview. So there's never a dull moment in our world. Oh, I bet it keeps you up at night. <laughs> so how did you get started in healthcare, specifically IT or cyber? So I've been in, in IT and security for over 25 years and been living in the security space for, I don't know, the last 10, 12 years. And oddly enough, we were looking to make a move and we have vacation cabins up in northern Wisconsin and had to take our daughter in who had strep throat or a sore throat. And my wife said, boy. These folks are really technologically advanced. Have you thought about looking into them? And that's where the, the that was the genesis of my discussions or wanting to start to come work for the health system. So we talked to them and made the move from Atlanta up here to Central Wisconsin. Wow. And you've been there eight years, I think? So yeah, eight years in April, we'll start our ninth year. So it's wow. been it's been great. And thankfully, everybody in the family has enjoyed winter sports and they didn't mute me on me. So that was great. So tw- 25 years is a long time to be in cyber. We'll cut you in there. Well, so much cyber. I was in IT and cyber. So, mm-hmm. but it was happenstance that I got into the IT world. I had an opportunity to go to work for AT&T Global Information Systems back in the mid 90s. And that's where I got the bug for computer networking and systems and architecture. And trans, the career transformed into to what it was in the early 2000s, started working on models and network security at that point. And then eventually I found my way into full-time cybersecurity work. And it's a passion. I absolutely love it. I think I've really found my niche in healthcare cybersecurity. I love the mission. I love the mission of protecting other things. I really find value in the work that I do. It's, it's definitely reaffirming. Yeah, it's a, it's such a great opportunity to experience a shared mission with customers. And it's unlike any other industry I've ever been in. Healthcare is very unique and very special. Yeah, it's also good to be surrounded by talented folks who share your same passion. Exactly. You know, it's like a, that North, the North Star for folks. It keeps everyone aligned and working together or in the same direction. With such a large organization, what keeps you up at night? What are the things you worry about? I think you can't be in healthcare or in any kind of CISO role, but particularly in healthcare and not be worried about the effects of those existential moments where a ransomware hits your organization or you're impacted by that type of security event. So those are the things that that we really spend a lot of time on rehearsing, practicing, proofing, ensuring that we have our resiliency processes and procedures down and doing the very best we can to get to that restorative state quicker than what most people have been. But it's a you can't not be in healthcare 
cybersecurity and not be concerned about look at the news from, I think it was Lehigh Valley Health System, where they had, they didn't pay the ransom, they were trying to restore and the threat actors threw a bunch of horrible images out on the dark web. But those are the type of people you're dealing with having to understand that if they're coming after hospitals, infrastructure, and while people are trying to be saved uh, and trying to impact healthcare, there, there's a certain level. It's definitely, they're bad people, bad actors, and we need to do more to stop them. Yeah, not to mention we're dealing with the, with the bad actors and the attacks during the pandemic. Oh, that's been thrown at us and our teams. Over that the last was insidious. That was insidious. I mean, literally during that October of twenty, um, when we were alerted by the FBI and CISA about those active attacks that were planned. There's to me, that's an act of war. I, I think they should. But what do I know? I think we should treat it as a terrorist act and then act accordingly Agreed. against them, those threat actors. But there's a lot more nuance to it, I understand. But I think we as a country need to start taking stronger stands against that. And the president's cybersecurity strategy memo that came out this week, I think we'll talk about that in terms of taking the fight to the bad guys. But yeah, it's been a rough couple of years for us, right? And it's been high stress, high intensity alerts. And Wake talks about alert fatigue from the national level, but the impact it has on your teams having to spin up, hitting that red button constantly because there's a new emerging threat that we all have to be mindful of. Uh, it's definitely taken its toll. It uh, yeah, it certainly does. It has not let up. And so, given all those pressures. What are you most proud of this past year, personally and professionally? The team surrounded by amazing people. And I've said this before on a number of different occasions. If you, your job is much easier if you have really smart, talented, dedicated folks working around you and with you. Um, I'm proud of the team that we built over the last year and the solutions. Frankly, we had a lot of solutions that we implemented to help us meet the challenges of today from the cyber perspective. And the folks stepped up to help assist and make sure that our security objectives for 22 were met with all the things we needed to do. Personally, I was honored to be chosen to attend the FBI CISO Academy at Quantico last year in May. That was a very impactful event in my career. Met some really amazing folks with the FBI Cyber Division and a number of CISOs throughout the different critical infrastructure verticals. And it was very impactful and uh, made a lot of nice friends there. Our listeners would love to hear more about that. What are some of the experiences that you found really interesting or insightful? I think more than anything, it was an area, an opportunity for you to talk to others, not necessarily in your field, but there were quite a few others in healthcare. There was a small number of folks from, I think there were about 20 of us. So it wasn't like a huge a group of people, and we had an opportunity to learn, learn from the FBI, build relationships with the folks that we need to reach out to when boom happened, right? So as opposed to just some nameless individual or a phone number to call, we started to interface more with some of these great folks at the FBI and other federal agencies. That was good, as well as interfacing with your colleagues, other shit. Excellent. And you got to go to Quantico, which was fun. Exactly. I had to put my junior G-man badge on and pretend that was something for a week. So, Do you get some badge you can put in your wallet? My dad yeah, I, they, 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 I, I was asking, they, they're like, there's no way in heck we're giving you one, Garneau. My, my kids are convinced I was going to be fast roping out of a helicopter, but I think, <laughs> think that would have ended badly. That's great. That's excellent. And I just want to echo and go back to your team because I'll tell you that you have an amazing team. My team has been working closely with them. I'm just really just honored and humbled by the strategic guidance and insight your team's been giving us on the product, on the workflows. And our listeners would love to understand more from your perspective on how you think about third-party risk and enterprise risk and 
how those things yeah. are colliding and and how do you think about transformation, the impact of that as you really transform your organization to take advantage of so some of the new things? It's interesting. We've been doing, you know, what I'll call, they used to call them security reviews, right? For about 10 years. Weren't very mature, but when, when I took over, we started to do our very best. And by the way, I'm this week I'm starting my eighth year as CISO which means I'm like a CISO dinosaur. I do have some gray on my beard now. You're the one guy that's been there for eight years. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, the interesting thing is that I believe so much in the mission of the Marshall Clinic, supporting rural healthcare and serving underserved populations that it's it's a great organization to work for. And I'm really proud of the people here. So we've had, it's been a journey. It's been transformational in terms of how we look at third-party risk, but we were doing it for, we've been doing it for a long time. And it was homegrown, like a lot of folks. You build out your spreadsheets and you build out your questionnaires. And what you're looking to do is ensure that the solutions that you're bringing into your organization don't introduce unnecessary risk that will ultimately impact patient safety or the health system, right? Because you're opening up gaps by introducing stuff. So we've spent a lot of time developing these questionnaires and trying to mature the process, working with our analysts in the care delivery side of the house, shared services side of the house, and getting them indoctrinated into that. And we did, we've been doing a fairly good job. We did a very good job, but then we found sense in it. And I think, frankly, I know we've talked about this and my team has, it's a bit of a game changer for healthcare cyber in the sense that I've been talking to colleagues the last few years saying, why can't we just have a vendor or someone put together a solution because we're all pretty much using the same tools by and large. And why do I have to go through the same exercise that you have because you just bought a Fuji C-arm and we've got the same Fuji C-arm? Why can't we utilize some of that same information or make the process more streamlined? And I, what we've done over the last, I don't know, it's not been a year, eight months or so, had a chance to transform how we do third-party risk assessments. And I think Part of the problem with the risk assessment process for us, from my lens, was you had to have a lot of folks spending a lot of time on it. So you had to have the analysts chasing down the vendor. You had to have security analysts spending a ton of time on reviews and looking at those third-party risk assessments. And it, there was a lot of wasted time. And the ability for us to shorten that time, pull out a lot of the resources that are needed to make this work and building in automation and a lot of those other neat little buzzwords that we all love to talk about. But it's true and it's helped us meet our goals. Our goal is not to spend or to be an impediment for the business because of a security review. I can't tell you how many times we've heard, oh, it's stuck in security. Yep, it is. It was. But that's just, our goal was to say, how can we change that dynamic? How can we change the narrative and help meet the business needs without extending the time in which it was sitting in our team's courts and working with your folks. We've been able to do that and I'm very pleased with the outcomes. Excellent. And when you think about other areas of risk in the organization, do you see it opportunities to consolidate some of those silos that exist? You mentioned you're a research firm or you're doing research essentially. Are you also yeah. looking at bringing IRB assessments into that? Yes, we are. Actually, I sit on the IRB board and I have for the last six years, but we're also looking to use the IRB module and see how that can help us streamline the process that we use when reviewing those IRB submissions. We're not quite there yet. I know we've started doing some rudimentary look information gathering on how that's going to help us and impact the process and introduce the change. But we haven't really gone too deep into that. But we're using SenseNet for across all 
different platforms. So it's a from a SaaS review to a piece of medical device, a medical equipment to enterprise system. All of that is now as opposed to going through our old SharePoint sites on the Word docs and Excel said Excel spreadsheets. We're pushing that all through Sense, and I think it's been very good up to now. Excellent. I appreciate that. And again, appreciate you being an advisor to me and uh, part of the customer advisory board because, your, again, your insight's been invaluable. Yeah, good group of people. And it's there's it's nice to see it's all one fight. And I say this all the time, right? It used to be a lot of security programs would be siloed. They wouldn't talk to each other from different organizations, but it's, it's that one team, one fight. We're all suffering through some of the same pain points. And if we can help each other by helping you on the advisory board make the product better, which will ultimately make the process better and us safer, we're all for it. Okay, excellent, excellent. Thank you. And again, thanks for all your support. We're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to go and our listeners always want to understand the person behind the role of protecting patient safety. So outside yeah. of healthcare or IT. Buckle up. <laughs> what are you most passionate about? What would you be doing if you weren't doing this, Greg? That's a really great question. I love to fly fish and I've been fly fishing for a number of years. And I fly, I did the fly fishing thing in faraway places as Tasmania in the middle of Central Highlands, Tasmania. So that was kind of fun. Did you I, see a Tasmanian devil? I haven't seen, didn't see the devil, but we saw a bunch of wallabies and cool bats and all sorts of crazy things. But it was great. But I love to fly fish in, in here in Wisconsin. We have Lots of opportunities and out west to go out west a lot too. I really enjoy that. I enjoy being able to share that with my children and they're starting to enjoy that more. My wife is fond of saying that I'm out on the water. My work a day life, things get stressful and you can get tense. But if I'm out on the water and even if my line's a tangled bird's nest, I'll just calmly just work through it and get it untangled and just be calm and peaceful out there. So I've enjoyed that. I also built my own bamboo fly rod. Oh. Um, Cool. Yeah, I have a, a friend of mine who is one of the preeminent bamboo fly rod makers in the world, and he held classes to build your own fly rod. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was the most intricate, detailed thing I'd ever done, but I, I was super proud when it was completed and it's an airline, and I fish it every so often, and I'll pass it down to my kids. I'll let them fly it over where it you, Do you make your own flies? as well? I did. I did. I have all the gear and I started doing some of that and took some classes and enjoyed that. Ultimately, just came to the conclusion it's a lot easier to go to the store and buy it. Like everything else, right? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure later in life when I retire, I'll spend a little bit more time building my own flies just because it's something interesting to do. Well, I imagine that connection with nature too must also have this, this spiritual effect as well when you're out there. Yeah, it's the place where you can decompress. For me, the outdoors is good. I also have a farm. Oh. So riding around on my tractor doing farm things is always a lot of fun. We have, we do maple syrup and make our own maple syrup and we have bees and we have cows and critters. I liken it to like Noah's Ark minus the water. I like the bees. But do you, how much honey do you produce? That's we have two hives. So we get a fairly okay. decent amount. It's yeah. not a ton, but it's enough just to keep us interested in and frankly, just give them out to friends and family yeah. for uh, Christmas. We got to keep the bees alive. There you go. If they're not, that's not good for us. <laughs> I love this question. And I know our listeners love it. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? 
Yeah. My 20-year-old self was definitely a bit of a knucklehead. I hadn't quite become a good student yet. I was far better at being a fraternity guy and knowing what the specials every night of the week at the local campus bars. But eventually we sorted it all out, obviously, as we're here. I would say enjoy, find joy in learning, not as an exercise in just getting to point A from point A to point B, like something you have to do to get your degree. I learned that later in life. And so I was just starting to work on advanced degrees and other things, because what we do here, we're constantly learning. Find joy in that and continue to, to nurture your curiosity. Those are some of the things that I would tell my 20-year-old. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, you have to be, I think, a voracious reader and curious and always a student of learning is how I put it. Always being willing to be open to learning new things and be proactive about it too, because I think oftentimes... The, the pressures of the day can take over and uh, we sometimes miss the forest through the trees. Yeah, absolutely. That's important. I, I tell all the folks on our teams that you need to be very purposeful about disconnecting and going to the place where you find happiness. Exactly. All right. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this last question. Okay. Since we are the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, what is the riskiest thing you've ever done? That's a great question. That's a really great question. And I don't think I have a very cool answer. I think taking a flyer and moving my family and a safe space when I was in Atlanta for 20 years, coming up here, that was probably one of the riskiest things I've done. And then thankfully it worked out great. I love it. And it was a fantastic move, but it could have been fraught with danger to move your cut, leave your comfort zone. You're basically like Cortez, right? When you get to the new world, you burn your shit, all that good stuff. But you're hoping that it works out and it's a leap of faith. And thankfully, we found this to be a, an incredible place to raise our family. And the Marshall Clinic Health System is one of the greatest organizations to work for. So we've been blessed and lucky. Any last comments for listeners? Any insight on cyber? Anything you'd like to share? I don't think I have anything unique to share other than to, other than to say we work hard every day to continue to save and serve our save lives, serve our patients. And it's important that we keep doing it and we evangelize why we have to do it to our leaders and make sure that you're really good at telling that story and sharing that narrative in order to make sure that you get funded and you get the staff you need, especially given today's interest. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for your time today and thank you for joining the podcast. And if you're on the front lines protecting patient safety, remember to stay vigilant and diligent because... Risk Never Sleeps. Thanks for listening to Risk Never Sleeps. For the show notes, resources, and more information on how to transform the protection of patient safety, visit us at sensinet.com. That's C-E-N-S-I-N-E-T.com. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet, and until next time, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps.